to Typology. I'm Anthony Skinner, producer of the show, and we want to congratulate Ian on the success of his new book, The Road Back to You, An Enneagram Journey to Self-Discovery, which has sold nearly 100,000 copies in its first year. And more importantly, we want to thank you for making that dream come true. If you haven't already read the book, go to Amazon, iTunes, or wherever your local books are sold and grab a copy. Now moving along, we've got a great show for you today, but first I'd like to remind you about our Patreon campaign. That's right. Patreon is a way for you to support content you believe in like typology on a monthly basis. For as little as a dollar a month, you can partner with us to help us cover studio costs, equipment costs, post-production editing, licensing fees for our music, and all the other stuff it takes for us to produce each episode of Typology. Just go to www.patreon.com forward slash typology. That's www.patreon.com forward slash T-Y-P-O-L-O-G-Y and select the level at which you want to support the show. You will not only receive our undying love and gratitude, but you're going to get a bunch of great bonus content as well. Even a dollar a month, folks, is a huge, huge help. And as promised, I'd like to give a shout out to a few of you who have helped Patreon already. Ayers Ruffin, Liam Stringham, Valerie Van Spengen, Aaron Webb, Mitchell Smith, Patrick Snyder, Mark Cameron, Lisa Pippas, Karen Taus, Kathy Graves, William Messer, and Mako Fujimura. Each of your contributions are so greatly appreciated. Thank you. And now, here's the host of our show, Ian Cron. Hey, everybody, this is Ian Cron, and I am honored and so excited to have this next guest on Typology. It's my friend, Dr. Andrew Root. And he is the Carrie Olson Balson Associate Professor of Youth and Family Ministry at Luther Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota. And he writes and researches in areas of theology and youth ministry. And I can tell you his most recent book, uh, which is titled The Grace of Dogs, A Boy, A Black Lab, and A Father's Search for the Canine Soul, is a must read. It is a fantastic book. So let's get to it. Andy Root, welcome to Typology, my friend. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet, man. So I am delighted that you're on. We first met two years ago, and as I recall, I don't remember which conference it was, but we were in Washington, D.C. I just, I remember this night, we were wandering around all these different monuments, and it was about 200 degrees, right? It was, and I remember we were sweaty in places uh, you don't like to be sweaty. Well, okay, so we've started off this interview on quite. <laughs> okay, everybody, now you know where this is going. Turn the volume up. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Andy Root. So uh, you're a five on the Enneagram. Yeah, I think um, this is probably something only a five would say, but I think like I am case study for the five. I think I should be in a museum of fives. Like it, the five is just, it's me all the way. So um yeah. But isn't that what a five would say? Yeah. Well, definitely, especially if they had a four wing. 
<laughs> Are you a four well, wing? I, I think so. I mean, I, I kind of want to be a six wing, but I think I, I think I'm a four wing. Why do you want to have a six wing? Well, it seemed I don't know. It seemed like the six a six wing will made you a better person, but maybe uh, maybe I'm misconstruing that. I don't know. I don't know. I just felt felt right. But uh, no, I think I I think probably uh, I'm more of a more of a four wing. Well, I, I will say this that um, I if I could be if I had to choose between them, I mean, I, you know, every number is great, but five of the four is so unusual in a way because mm. your five is in the headspace. Right with five, six, and seven, and your four is in the heart space. Two, three, and four. And so, yeah. if you look at the enneagram, the five of the four is the farthest distance apart from any two numbers on the enneagram. Hmm. So right there on the bottom. Yeah. So like Thomas Merton, who was a, I think, well, he might have been a four with a five. But the cool thing, oh well, like Tom York or, you know people like that that you've you've got when you speak with people in your writing or in your speaking you're communicating not just from your head but also from your heart yeah and that makes for a very powerful uh communicator and thinker it might it also makes for a very tortured human being so uh <laughs> that's that that's uh so you know great for the people listening but i'm a mess <laughs> You know, I do recall from our last encounter with each other in Washington, D.C., that you were a little on the, you know, a lot of a little bit on the tortured side, which I, you know, as a four, yeah. I, I'm totally in on that. Yeah. Yeah. Because you, from the head and the heart, I'm, I'm thinking I want you to think I'm really smart and to think that I'm really moving and I'm changing your head and your heart. And it's a, uh, yeah, it's quite an uphill battle. Yeah. It's a lot of work to be you. Isn't it is it? a lot of work. It yeah. is. Yeah. It, yeah. It's very hard to be me. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I want everyone, I mean, obviously people can't see you, but if they could, it would be unbelievable because I am looking inside as you, as you called it, the ultimate man cave. Like you are in, how big is that room? Uh, it's not very big. It's probably 11 and there's a little, there's a little kind of uh, nook in it, but there's, it's probably 11 feet by six feet. It's, okay. it's small. It's small. It's a little bigger than what one would call a closet, but not much. Okay. So I'm looking at you on Skype and I am looking at all the walls on your, on one side, it looks like most of the walls are books. Yeah. And then yep. you've got a collection of like prints or pictures or book covers over there. Yeah, the... those are those are my book covers. Yeah. So when mm. I really hit my existential depths, I can remind myself that I've done something. Yeah, yeah. It looks like you've got 14 books there. Have you been counting? Yeah, I'm not dumb. Uh, yes. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 And. Yep. And you've got like uh, I guess those are your kids' pictures on the door, or what? Are, what are those? I can't. Oh, <laughs> those oh no, are, those are the actual sleeves of your those book. Those are don't dust they? jackets. Yeah. <laughs> are you kidding me? This is this is a room that's just the inside of my brain is what this is supposed to represent. So. Okay, and from what I can tell, there are no windows in that room. There's one. No, there isn't. There's one teeny little um, uh, window that gets me some circulation, but right. that's it. Okay. Why would I want, why would I want the outside world in my room? <laughs> you are a 5, aren't you? <laughs> I am. <laughs> and by the way, I'm not going to talk much more about the the uh describing your space, but you have a microphone that looks like something off a 1968 episode of Star Trek. Yeah, it is kind of that. Someone gave this to me and uh 
I think you said in your chapter on fives that fives are not good dressers. Yeah. You said they're not going to win fashion. And I'm not going to win any technology uh, kind of competitions either because I, I like free stuff because I like to hoard my money and feel safe because I haven't spent my money. Uh, so, uh, yeah. So it's uh, – yeah, this was like right when the internet came out. Someone had this microphone. So. Uh, <laughs> Okay, everyone, actually, my producer is laughing in the background. He actually can't contain himself, and he's not even supposed to be on the recording. That's awesome. So, um, fives, they're called the investigators, although I think now I'm starting to really like the word observer more um, because you all are the most observant of all types on the Enneagram. You're uh, maybe one of the, the unconscious motivations of the five is um, to collect, aggregate, hoard vast amounts of knowledge and information. They have a need to perceive or to understand just about everything in order to ward off uh, feelings of inadequacy uh, or ineptitude. Uh, that's a mouthful, isn't it? Yeah, but it, it sounds like you're, uh, you're saying poetry to me, so uh, just keep going. <laughs> so right now you feel more you feel understood and like you understand that's right that's exactly it so tell me how you came to believe you were a five was it simple uh well it was simple in the sense that um my wife who's a pastor Kara, she got really into the enneagram and so and i have to maybe this is part of my fiveness i hate all personality tests like i i I want to like run into some kind of philosophical argument like, well, personality tests totalize people and the Christian tradition and just Western philosophy all went wrong when we started totalizing people. Isn't that what was wrong with Heidegger anyhow is that it was a totalization of being and I, I, I refuse to be totalized. I'm an infinite mystery. Every human being is. You can't. You absolutely cannot give me a number and think that's me. And then she convinced me just to hear the description and after like five minutes I was like yep that's well yeah that's me that's who I am so it was pretty easy in the sense of uh once I heard it I was uh, pretty sold at that it it yeah it described me to to a t so um so it was easy in that sense right so so far you've used the word totalization totalize you've referenced Heidegger and you've used the word misconstrue at the very beginning of the interview so I think so far we're deep into a fives uh you know mastery of vocabulary which is uh, that's pretty good Maybe, but also the negative sides of the five make me worry that I'm going to misuse one of those words and then it will be recorded and people will use it against me and think I'm an idiot because I uh, mispronounced a word or something. So, uh, yeah. Well, I'm going to actually work you toward that. Um, okay. But I, but I fear that uh, I, I may fail in my attempt. Um, so you're in the, the fear triad and you know, along with sixes and sevens, fives tend to go inward with their fear. Sixes don't know what to do with their fear or their, I guess the word better word is anxiety and, and sevens go out with it. Right. To, and this is, these are all like fear management systems. And I'm, I'm just wondering how you have personally experienced anxiety in your life. Like what role has it played in your life? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think as a, as an academic, you live your whole life under the fear that you're an imposter. You know that um, 
that that you're going to be found out. So I, I I deal with it that way. I think like how I deal with my fear is, and maybe this is just a classic five thing, is that I really um, I go private. I go very very private and uh, need my house and need this little room um, to go to. And so um, yeah, I think I think that tends to be how I deal with it. I go very internal, but that that it manifests itself in space itself. So. Right. Um, it's really hard for my wife who's a two because when I'm tired, I don't want anyone around. Um, and I'm okay with my immediate family, but like the thought of even having a good friend over for dinner just feels like an incredible burden. Mm. So let's talk about that because a two wife would want to have a lot of friends over for dinner or at least be bringing like casseroles to other people for dinner when they're in crisis. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she, uh, she always is doing that for sure. And I look at her funny thinking, why would you do that? I mean, it seems like a nice thing to do, but that'd be the last thing I'd want to do. Um, but yeah, it's been a lot of negotiation for us actually. Okay. So tell me, tell us about the negotiation. Yeah, well, I think probably our first five or six years of marriage, that that was the real hard part about our, our marriage was how to negotiate this and how to, how to uh, figure out a way between these two really deep desires. And I think we finally, I mean, the truth of the matter is when it comes to our house, I almost feel shameful saying this, but I tend just to win. Like it's really hard for me to have anyone even stay at our house. I, I just, I have the hardest time. So if she wants to like ask for her sister and her sister's kids to stay over, I need like three weeks to a month to get my mind around what that would possibly look like, how that could happen. Um, and it just feels invasive to be quite honest. So, um, yeah, I would rather go out to a restaurant to meet someone or whatever. And so she, I think she's had to sacrifice some of that. Um, I've had to also get over it a little bit, but it took us a long time in our marriage just to negotiate how we were going to do those things. Um, when I had such a desire for privacy and she had such a desire to be hospitable to people and that's just not my spiritual gift. Yeah. So how have you managed to work it out? Oh gosh, that's, that's good. Now, now we're uh, entering into therapy mode here. Um, so if I start tearing up and crying, you can just, uh, I don't know. Well, if you start tearing, up, if you start and... tearing up and crying, then I think uh, you're probably a four with a five, but not a five <laughs> with a four. <laughs> that's that's probably true. I, I actually just say that in jest. I have my I I'm in my head too much to even 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 feel that. Um, you know, I I th- it just it, t- it yeah. I guess I don't want to reiterate uh, repeat myself again, but it just it took us a while, and I think I mean it's led to a, we we fought a lot about it. Um, and I think part of the issue for me is that deep need for privacy. I think my mom now, see, now we're getting deep into, uh, Freudian stuff here. I think my mom was probably a two and pretty aggressive too as well. Maybe, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe a four, I don't know. But, um, but I, so my own, as a kid, my in my desires, my needs to go internal and private, I've always felt a little bit of shame about those. And so that, that becomes the issue. Cause I'll, feel like I'm letting her down that I don't want to do this or even have like self-talk like what's wrong with me that I don't want to have people over that that I you know I don't want anything I don't want to do this and so um, I think what finally really broke it for us is that she just simply would would do things particularly outside of our house without me and I could either 
be part of them or not in that she had to kind of realize that actually if she gave me freedom that I would often want to do those things. Mm. So where, where I would get stuck is like, we're going to have these people over. I want to have these people over as opposed to giving me a sense that I could opt out or that this could be my choice was a, a major, it was a big difference for me so that I could actually decide yeah, yeah, I, I can handle it. Yeah. That would be okay if they stayed here. But I don't know if this is a five thing you can tell me, but feeling like social obligations just really is hard for me. Like I feel really stuck. I feel really caught and, um, and I'll, and I'll try to kind of revolt against those. Mm. So, so here's a scenario for you. You're at the faculty, you know, uh, a faculty banquet and uh, someone spontaneously says, and now we would like to ask Andy Root to stand up and spontaneously speak about his most recent research and his feelings about being uh, on our faculty. Andy, and they turn it over to you. What what would happen in that moment for you? Well, it depends. Uh, if if Usually what I do when I hear people talking up front is I get in my head and I think, what would I be saying right now? And so if then they turned to me and said, Andy, would you say something if I would have this kind of arrogant self-talk like, well, I'm so smart. I'm the smartest person in this room. So, of course, they want to hear from me. I would probably have something to say and I would relish the fact of being up there and talking. But what would make me absolutely wither is after that public speaking opportunity if people came up to me with wine and asked me more personal questions about how I felt about things or even how I felt about being asked to do that. That would make me feel really uncomfortable. I mean, I kind of live with this weird dichotomy, especially as a kind of a scholar who's writing books, is where I live so much, almost my whole life is lived in the project I'm working on, but I feel very uncomfortable when people ask me what I'm working on. Unless it's like someone who's in the kind of – someone who will enter into kind of the tennis match with me of back and forth ideas. But if it's someone who's just kind of like my mother-in-law. When my mother-in-law asks me what I'm working on, I, I want to jump out a window. Seriously. I just feel like she's <laughs> she's invasive and she just – Want, I just want to jump out of one. Here, here's a here's a five story for you talking about mother-in-laws, and you can stop me when this is crazy. But one of the biggest conflicts that started early in our marriage, and some of your listeners are going to think that I'm just a repressed weirdo, but she, um, we we were married just a few few weeks, maybe or maybe it was Christmas break or something, so a few months, and she had to move, and she she asked us to she asked me to move her stuff without any kind of appreciation for my own privacy and my own volition and it and it was the hardest thing for car to figure out because as a two you just help you just help and as a five i felt like i needed to be brought into helping and um yeah and it was it was hard one of the first times i met my mother-in-law she looked at me and she said from across the table at a pancake restaurant and she said just tell me everything about yourself and i was like I'm out. Like that's it. I I don't know if I'll ever be able to talk to this woman again. So um, so yeah, that's unbelievable. So you're really you just hit on so many things. I want our folks to realize about five. So one is that fives relish their privacy, their personal space, right? So we already have evidence that you relish. You've got a man. You've got a five cave there, as you call it, and. Yep. 
uh, where chances are after a day where you've had to stand up in front of students and interact and, and with people, uh, maybe have a few chance encounters that were, you know, depleting for you. You go into that, I'm assuming that five cave and it's like, you know, pulling your Nissan leaf up to a charger station. Right. And you, you just kind of reboot, uh, to meet the next set of you know relational challenges that you have. Um, secondly, uh, it's really hard for fives to be self-disclosing. So, for people to come up to me and they said, Hey, tell me all about your family and what you're feeling about, you know, what's going on in your life, man, I can just kick into gear and start talking about my feelings and sharing deeply about, you know, with my kids, where they are, et cetera. But often for fives, they experience that even a little bit of a probe into their personal world as prying. Oh is yeah, for sure. So is that what you felt in that moment with your, with your mother-in-law? Yeah. For, yeah. I felt like, I felt like she was, and this is what I'll often say, even after speaking events and things, I felt like she was trying to eat me. That's what I felt like. And so, um, and I feel that sometimes after speaking too, where people come up and, and I've, I really love speaking in front of groups of people because there's nothing more important, I think, or maybe stimulating for a five to stimulate other people's minds. And then maybe this is my four wing to make them feel something, but then they want to come up and they feel like they know me and they really want to know me. And I feel like they're trying to eat me, that they're they're trying to consume me. And it's uh, I I can't run fast enough from that. So it's interesting. Carl Jung would say that that uh, or Jungians would say that there, there are essentially three wounds or uh, experiences that we have as kids. One is and this is these are unavoidable, regardless of how charmed a life you've had. Well, one would be abandonment. The The second one would be neglect. And the third one would be what you're describing, which is engulfment or overwhelmment. I know that's not actually a word, but it is in the Jungian sphere is overwhelmment, mm -hmm. which is this feeling that, uh, you know, being smothered and psychologically smothered by another person. And so for fives, the response, if that happened in childhood, either in a real way or a perceived way, is they run up into the cave of their mind. And it's like, this is too much for me. I cannot, I, the psychological space is all eaten up. I, I got to run behind these thick sort of boundaries, psychological boundaries. Is, so in other words, is this interaction with your mother-in-law reminiscent of a real or perceived experience of engulfment from growing up? Oh yeah, I think so for sure. I mean, I, I, I feel like, um, <laughs> yeah, with both my own mom, I, I, I felt that way. Um, and even with my sister, I felt that way. And I think that, that, that made relationships with them hard or it made me feel like I was always very odd because they would want, they would, they would want something from me that I felt like I, I just couldn't, I couldn't give them. And then that would lead me. And maybe this is how spirituality and maybe eventually theology led to be such a part of my life. I would run up into my brain to try to figure out why I felt this way, how, why, why this felt restrictive or something and what this meant about me, what this meant about God. And, uh, and in some ways learning to, to think theologically or to read the Christian tradition, uh, broaden that and help me make sense of that. So I, I, you know, I, I tend to think that, um, I mean, like in your book, you reference your friend who read everything about printers, um, cause he's a five and that's not, that's not necessary. You even said like the internet is a black hole cause you can just lose things. That's, I don't think that maybe this is my four wing, but that's, I don't get stuck that way, but I do get 
deeply stuck at feeling things, not being able to know how to cope with those and then needing to intellectualize them. I need to build them into a theory and a narrative to make sense of my own experience. So um, I think the way I've coped with a lot of those deep feelings, a lot of those existential feelings, a lot of those feelings of being smothered is then to create a grand theory for them. Um, you know, like the whole a theory of everything from Stephen Hawking or whatever, there is nothing more almost erotic for me than a theory <laughs> of everything. Like that, that is what I am dreaming of. And But it does really start with my own experience, my own probably experience as a child, which is probably one of the reasons I, I studied children and, and young people is because uh, I'm really aware of how uh, those experiences send, send you somewhere. And for me, they definitely sent me up into my mind. All right, well, I want to jump then right to your book, um, okay. which, because this, that's a perfect lead in and talking about the book um, would really give people insight into fives, uh, not to mention it would promote your book at the same time. So um, a grace, the grace of dogs, a boy, a black lab and a father's search for the canine soul. Um, first of all, amazing title and very descriptive, I might add, comprehensive in its description of the book. Um, and. I want to know because it's a heartfelt book. I mean, just describe the reason, you know, tell the story behind the book. It's it's actually quite moving. And yet this is a five writing about this very moving topic. So I want to sort of probe that for a second. Yeah. So we had this black lab, obviously it's there in the title. Um, this black lab's name is Kirby. And we, uh, Carr and I got Kirby when we were, I was at Princeton. So, um, I was a PhD student at Princeton. We went to get milk one night, ended up at a pet store and came home with, uh, a trunk filled with a kennel and dog food and toys, a seven week puppy in Cara's lap and the, uh, ice cream and milk that we went to buy still at the at her feet so it was a the biggest impulse buy i've ever had buying this dog but this was before we had kids we loved this dog and then as my kids came into the world this dog um i don't know became incredible friends with my kids i mean slept every night at at owen my oldest feet and um was there to comfort Maisie when she had a bad day at school well now a few summers ago uh, he started to just be acting weird and he was 11 now and we knew he was starting to get old for a black lab but he had had some bad days before but he would always recover pretty quickly well the night this night before we had this this conversation about something really be wrong with him he slept on the bathroom floor which he never went into our downstairs bathroom let alone sleep there and i was pretty sure something not so good was up here car thought oh he'll recover so she suggested that she take him to the vet and she took him to the vet and thought the vet would check him out and maybe give him a pill and he'd be back in the backyard fetching in no time but she got him there and within a few minutes the vet took him into the the exam room and uh just did a few tests with him and said i'm really sorry there's a huge huge mass in his stomach and this is it this is the end so she uh left kirby on the floor he couldn't even be moved and she returned home and picked me up and the two kids up. I think Owen was eight at the time and, and Maisie was uh, six. And we went back to say our goodbyes to Kirby. And when we went back into that exam room, the kids just, I mean, they just broke down and sobbed, threw themselves on, on Kirby. He had he was had no energy, but still when he saw their faces, his tail just wagged enough. And they just cried and cried and cried. And we got back into that uh, room. His back leg was already shaved to take the injection that would, would put him down. 
and the vet came in and said, are you ready? And we said, yes. And they injected him. And then the kids just started sobbing. We all now were sobbing um, to such an extent that the, now the, the dead dog's snout was just sopping wet with the children's tears. And at that point, I mean, this was just too much emotion and I couldn't take it. So I got up and I left the room and I took the my youngest, Maisie, with me and was left Kara and Owen in the room. And somewhere in the midst of this, Owen was sobbing and didn't want to leave Kirby and said, I'll be right back and went out into the waiting room and came back with a couple of dog treats and a Dixie cup of water, came back into the room and said to Kara, um, I have something I need to do. And he stuck his finger in the Dixie cup of water and uh, made the sign of the cross on the dog's forehead, set the treats on his back and then lifted his hands to heaven like a priest at the table and gave this dog back to God. And so it's from that very experience that the book kind of launches and, and tries to ask this question, why did that feel right? Um, when Cara told me this story as we were driving home, she said something holy just happened in that room and said what happened. Um, I was just, I was first of all just perplexed by how deeply I was grieving the loss of this dog. I mean, I knew I would be sad when this dog would, when we would lose Kirby, but the anger, the, the, just the deep, yeah, I guess the anger that this dog had been ripped from this world that I loved this dog. And then his experience, his little liturgical act just sent me on this journey of asking what's really going on between human beings and, and their dogs. So that's when the fiveness, um, kind of kicks in. And the next thing I knew I was on Amazon buying like 20 books on the science of dogs and like the evolutionary origins of dogs. And, um, I just had this incredibly deep feeling and now I had to rush up into my head and figure out what was really going on here. And so the book really is the voyage of a five trying to figure out how he's going to tell his kids, um, and explain to his kids why they love their dog so much and why their dog was so important to them. Okay. This is so rich. I'm like, my brain is on like firing like my, you could probably hear the synapses, like the, you know, firing in my head uh, through the microphone. Um, it's interesting, the word, so I'm a four, you're a five. And the word you, what you said was, I, I was perplexed, right? Mm. And I, I think of that as being, you know, a, a sort of a brain related or, a, you know, cognition brain, sort of a word. I would have said heartbroken, you know, mm. or I was overwhelmed with grief or, you know, whatever and and but you went right to the mind you you, you bypassed emotion in the moment yeah. and it sounds like the book was you're trying to develop a theory of dogs death relationships with human beings and in, in a way bypassing the emotion as it relates to the dog's passing yeah i mean I mean, maybe I don't. Yes, I think what I've probably done, and this goes back to my childhood experience we were just talking about, is I think I have this overwhelming desire to intellectualize my emotions, to to take my feelings in, construct a theory, to construct a narrative, to be able to interpret them. And so maybe, yeah, I think it's true. Like I felt. I was really feeling them and I was really deeply feeling things. And maybe this is my four wing. It's not that I was affronted by my feelings or trying to push them away. But for me, as soon as I feel something, I have to try to construct a theory on why I, I feel that. Um, mm. And so I think that's, I hope that's what the book kind of gets at. I think I worry about the book in the sense that it's a little bit too 
intellectualized. It's just a little bit too much theory. And it is kind of a popular science book in that sense. I mean, there's a lot of kind of science here. Um, but I want to keep feeling things, but I don't know how to feel things in the world without trying to intellectualize them. This, you know, this goes back to me and, and, and you said to do full disclosure here. When, when Carr and I fight, um, and this is with my kids now too, I don't mean to, but I bombard them with theory construction. So I'm upset that this is dirty or I'm upset that someone didn't take off their shoes when I've asked why they take off their shoes. And I can go on a 20-minute diatribe on why it's so important that one takes off their shoes, the historical conceptions of shoes, what it means ethically when you don't do – like I – and it becomes a real problem in my life because when I get emotional and when I have deep feelings, I actually become more articulate and I start – I. I to be quite honest, I start seeing shapes and I start seeing connections and I start seeing things and then I will just shove your face in my theory <laughs> and I feel like I have to persuade you over and over again. And if it didn't work to persuade you with this line of logic, now I'm going to give you a dip. I'm going to give you another one and you're eventually going to see this. So it's really hard for my wife because if I ever get charged like that, um, I'll do this. So the book really is, is, I mean, it doesn't fit clearly into like the academic progressions of my life it is kind of a tangent but it's a tangent that was born from deep emotion i didn't know how else to deal with emotion so i had to create a theory for the reader mm. wow you are really giving our, our listeners a chance to to understand the heart and the mind of of a five i'm wondering if i mean this is i hear this from fives a lot is they're they are afraid of being suddenly over you know experiencing overwhelming feelings uh particularly in public but that that feeling of like i i can't have a sudden experience of intense feelings i'm a you know avoidant of that that experience you know and so i'm wondering if the intellectualization at that you know in a moment is sort of like i have to run from intense feelings that are coming up in, a, in an unexpected way right now. Yeah, for sure. I, I yeah, I, I feel like most of my life is running, um, running from, from, from that kind of stuff. And particularly those feelings that are projected upon me, um, that are kind of pushed on me. I will run so fast from those or to survive them. I'm going to have to intellectualize and theorize why you're pushing this on me. But I would much rather step back and in, in, um, be an observer to then construct the theory. So this is the, the crazy thing about me and it's like my deepest, deepest longing and often unspiritual and ambitious longing is to be the person in the room that no one notices but everyone is talking about. That like in, the, in other words, that no one will talk to me but everyone respects me. Respects, so your, I, respects your intellect. Yes, respects that my ideas somehow changed them, somehow um, awoken them. But and they know that I'm there. But they they would see this is where it's very deeply unspiritual. They know that I'm there, but they would they would never come up and approach me. Mm. So that's what's like that's what's that's like the temptation of celebrity to me. I would never want to be necessarily a celebrity, but the thought of a celebrity being someone who impacts someone else, but also is allowed to put up a barrier so no one can get to them is really really appealing um, <laughs> so being Stephen Hawking actually would be great because you'd have like 10 PAs between you and the rest of the world 
Yes. Yes. Like the thought of actually having a PA is extraordinarily appealing to me just so I could have a buffer that would have to keep me from doing like menial talk to people, you know? Um, so someone who can answer emails or yeah, like I hate talking on the phone. Like the, the, the invention of the, the text message has been a godsend for me. Cause if I have, I just, the, the six seconds of actually explaining who I am when I call them, like I would rather someone call me. Like I even think, um, with your producers, I, I texted like, call me. Cause the thought of me having to call him and just have those few seconds of him being like, who is this? is just so draining. I mean, it just eats my, that, that little interpersonal work is just more than I can actually take in a day. And I just have to watch like eight hours of TV to be able to survive the fact that we had eight seconds where I had to explain who I was and you didn't know why I was calling. Um, yeah. So I'm. Um, yeah. You you see where this goes. Yeah. I mean, actually, I was, the mental image I had as you were describing is the Dementors from Harry Potter. Yes. <laughs> sucking out the soul of other people. Remember, mouth to mouth, it was like sucking out their soul. <laughs> yeah, but for me, it's like a phone, a, a cold, a cold call uh, on on the phone is what actually does it for me. Wow. So you know, it's interesting about fives. Um, sometimes they can be very condescending and adopt a, a very um, sort of a superior position to other people, particularly when they're talking about their area of expertise. You know, it's almost like a defense of a way of sort of announcing to the world, I am actually very adequate and hardly inept. And uh, let me just demonstrate that to you. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, yeah, well, maybe people close to me would, would probably be able to answer if that's me better than, than, than I would. I mean, Carl will accuse me that of that and I can get very, very kind of arrogant and, um, you know, she's a pastor. I write about pastors. I interview pastors. I'm an academic training pastors. So how many times I've said, you know, someone in her life is stupid, um, or is a terrible thinker. Um, I would be ashamed for anyone to know that. So that's definitely part of me, but I think publicly, um, part of my desire to be seen as competent is I've learned that if, if I, I hope this is a true spiritual gift to be hum, to, to have some kind of humility. And I've tried to practice that in my spiritual life, but humility has also been a little bit of a, um, release valve where if I can take a place of humility, then if I, if it does happen that I get humiliated, it's not as bad. Or, um, I know with myself when someone is really arrogant, when a five meets a five and a five meets a five, it's like two, I don't know, um, uh, two rhinoceroses in the, in the wild or something. When you see another five and they're over arrogant, you, you immediately want to take them down. And so to enter the environment a little bit more humble, there's things I don't know, especially in an, in an environment where there might be another five is a little bit safer. Mm. And maybe that's part of being a five. You always imagine everyone else is a five as well, or everyone else is, is uh, kind of thinking about the capacities of your intellectual ability. And if, you're, if the theory you're presenting actually holds water, um, which is pretty much what I do with everyone I talk to. Yeah, right now I'm feeling paranoid because we've been talking now for about 41 minutes and I'm thinking to myself, he, this guy thinks I'm an idiot. <laughs> you know, he's actually being highly entertained by someone he knows has got 50 less points on the IQ than he does. No, 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 no. That's not what I'm thinking at all. I'm thinking, do you think that I'm doing well and that I'm smart? That's what, I, that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> 
Well, I was actually just looking online at Mensa to see if I can actually apply and feel better about myself right now. So, so you're actually tapping into something important. The, the passion or the deadly sin of fives is avarice, right? They're afraid that they lack the inner resources to meet the demands of life. And so to preserve independence and energy, like fives will hoard knowledge and privacy and time and space and affection eventually, right? From other people. Mm-hmm. But so the, the kind of the antidotal or the countering virtue is generosity. And I wonder mm-hmm. if, and generosity meaning they relax this, their mindset of scarcity and embrace the reality of we live in an abundant world and that the more they give, the more mm-hmm. they'll receive. I mean, that's just the calculus of Christian spirituality. I think probably perennially across other traditions too. It's just like the uh, a sort of a, a maxim or a, a rule in the spiritual life, if you will. And I'm just wondering about generosity. Like, do you, do you find yourself becoming more generous and giving your heart and as you get older and your, your thoughts away and your, your private information away and, and just to Mm. other human beings? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I would actually say that one of my, um, my spiritual shortcomings is actually generosity. Uh, It's, it's been a, a battle for me to be to be generous. And that's with, you know, money, because I think for me, I use money to feel safe. Um, so that's, that's been at times hard. Uh, it's been hard in my life to be generous with ideas because I want credit for those ideas. Those ideas came from my genius. So I want everyone to mm. know that those came from me. If you're going to footnote me and stuff, that's fine. But you got to know that I was, I was, you know, like how tragic if Albert Einstein didn't get credit for the general theory of relativity like I you've, you've got to you know I, I've got to get credit for that now that where this all breaks open for me and has probably been the center of my work and is in this this dog book but even the other work is that oddly I've been a five who's spent most of my life writing about relationships and the significant of relationships and at one level I feel like I'm I'm not qualified to do that as a five but at another level I think I'm the most qualified because I theorize about relationships but i desperately need relationships to to free me from from this and so where i really feel a lot of generosity and have tried to do my own work and then maybe give it back is in this these places where human being encounters human being and encountering someone else's personhood i found an incredibly transformational and overwhelming generosity within that. And and so I've tried to live out of that. And when I can really see someone else's personhood and, and can feel the experience of being ministered to or ministering to another, I find that I can let go of, of the other uh, hoarding that I do, whether it's my ideas, whether it's my money, um, whether it's just my energy. I'm a massive hoarder of energy um, where I I watch a lot of TV and I mainly do it because I spend all my day in my head and then I re- recharge and, and hoard my energy by what just chilling out and watching tv but i can and, and it's hard for me to like have even a friend over for dinner because well from eight to ten i watch tv so if they if they intervene in that time then i don't i don't get i don't get the energy i need to continue with my work mm-hmm. so um i think for me what's helped lead to generosity was actually opening myself up to be in relationship with others and needing others to be in relationship with. So I've spent a lot of time thinking about relationships because I'm just really not good at them. Mm. So how, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I see this a lot where 
fives will marry people in the heart space. And it's like a two uh, who's exquisitely attuned to the feelings and needs of others. And the most interrelational, interpersonal number on the on the Enneagram are twos, right? The, uh, I like now I'm, Beatrice Chestnut, Chestnut turned me on to another word for them, the befrienders. Uh, which I think is a great word, not just the helper, but the befriender. I mean, they just, you know, three seconds with somebody and they're already into the heart. So did you outsource your feelings to hmm. your wife? I I think there are times that I outsource my feelings to my wife. Um, I, for sure, I, in our marriage, it somehow worked that I outsource really highly interpersonal in, in encounters to my wife. Mm. Like I, for so many years would go to my kids conferences in, in, and wanted to kill myself in the conferences. Like just the small talk. I just, I, I, ju I just wanted to jump out of my skin and we started to negotiate. Like she goes to conferences and I do this. So I think I've outsourced yeah, some of my feelings, but for sure, those social engagements that would call for a lot of just for some people would be basic interpersonal interaction. I can I can almost feel I can feel it in my body. I can feel the energy like a video game, you know, like when people lose energy and, and you can see their energy bar go down. I can feel that in like being at the elementary school and having to talk to other to, to teachers like, come on, man, I just. I just can't, I can't do it. So I definitely have outsourced some of those things to her and, uh, yeah, it's, it's worked really well for us, but I, I think, I think for a lot of people, probably twos and fives that have a hard time. I don't know. You, you would probably know more than, than, no, than I, 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 okay. no, I don't think so. I think any two numbers that are healthy and self-aware can get along just fine. Uh, okay. it's yeah. only really if you're, if you're kind of lacking self-awareness and self-knowledge and you're just kind of living out of your conditioned patterning, you know, and your mm -hmm. defenses and your coping strategies, uh, you know, none of which are, I mean, they got you through childhood just fine, but as an adult, they can start to come back and bite you in the rear end. Right. Um, so that leads me to my next question, which is about the false self. Uh, you know, I, I've been really sort of driving this home with people, this idea that, you know, when people say I'm a five, I kind of want to correct them and say, actually, mm. you're not a five. The, mm. the point of the Enneagram is to tell you that you are infinitely more than some personality type. Some That's your cover story. Right. That, that was your way of, you know, kind of navigating the world. And when you're healthy, right, when you're in a good space, you actually represent the wisdom and the omniscience of God. I mean, that's sort of your gift. That's what, the, that's what you reflect to the world. Me as a four, my gift is you know, reflecting the beauty and the pathos of God, the creativity mm -hmm. of God. So I could go around the whole Enneagram and say, hey, when you're healthy, you're reflecting a particular dimension of your personality, right, to mm -hmm. the rest of the world. But when you're unhealthy, you're using it in service to your own false self, right? It becomes mm -hmm. ego-driven, right, self-protective. So I want to know from your perspective, what is the path of transformation and spiritual growth for a five? Hmm. Gosh, that is such a good question. Um, yeah, I guess I can only speak from, from my own, my own experience. What has been the process of spiritual formation for me is to actually have and be with others that, um, I can provide 
an interpretive story too. I think I think when I'm at my best, I'm not theorizing about you, but I'm able to to narrate and tell a story that includes you, um, and that includes us us both. That does bring head and heart together. Um, that can be maybe inspirational to me as well as to you, but ultimately gets me out of my um, privacy cave and into communion with with you um, communion is a big word my friend god I mean, just okay. please tell me more about because that i mean the the five go back to this word observer and i bet you i'd love to ask your parents what you were like as a kid or your teachers what you were like as a kid because i've had five say to me because they're such amazing observers that they felt as kids and even as adults like they've been standing on the frame of the picture but they never go into the picture right mm-hmm. and what mm-hmm. you're describing is okay i got to get off of the frame and i got to move into the world of other human beings and not just experience engagement but you just use the word communion yeah what is yeah that? and that yeah and that's i think one of the reasons why my work is focused so much on relationships is because when i found those kind of relationships where I'm not consumed, but I am drawn in and shared in and invited to share in another, I experience something sacramental, something Mm. where I feel known, where I feel like I'm participating in. One of the biggest breakthroughs in my life, and this kind of all goes back to my childhood wound or whatever, is uh, reading Bonhoeffer. And in Bonhoeffer's Sanctorum Communo, he talks about relationships. And he says, relationships are contingent on being open to one another obviously. But he says one of the things we miss is that relationships are also contingent on being closed. And once I heard that, it was absolute liberation to me because I had been closed and always felt unbelievable amounts of guilt for it. And once I, the people in my life that bring spiritual transformation are the people who respect my closeness and then from my closeness beckon me into communion. So communion for me is this balancing of open and closeness where I keep my distinction um, am not meshed, but I'm led through my distinction into real participation and a depth of participation. So that is a, it, it, that's definitely true for me. Being on the edge for me hasn't always been I'm observing. It is partly that, but it's also I'm protecting. I'm I'm looking for I'm looking for the escape hatch. I'm looking for the door that gets me out of this moment um, unscathed. And I feel like when I'm beckoned in, someone sees me I guess maybe one of the, maybe this sums it all up is that I it's a joke around our family that I hate parties and the only parties I like are the parties that are thrown in my honor those are the only parties that I like <laughs> and and at the negative end I think what that I hate just standing around and having to talk to people but if if people are approaching me and want to talk to me um and know me I'm really taken deeply in so at, at at a at a bad level, of course, that means that you know I need to be the center of the attention. But at the good level, is that um, there's an incredible, incredible gift for a five when someone can actually see them and through their freedom and through, in some sense, respecting their closeness, are beckoned into the center and into relationship. It it's it's more than just a nice connection. It is communion. It is it is the experience of the spirit. It's, it is transformational. It is to be in, um, you know, Bonnie Vera has that great line. And I think it's, uh, whatever song it is where he says somewhere, uh, baby, it's part of me apart from me. Mm. Um, and there's just something that feels 
very deeply spiritual about that. Like the Cappadocian fathers are talking about how the natures of Jesus Christ works or how the Trinity works. That somewhere, baby, it's a part of me, a part of uh, somewhere. It's a part of me, but apart from me. And, um, and I think for five, that's what we really long for to be part of something while not being our differentiation, not being swallowed up. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's freedom to be, to be yourself, but also deep tissues of connection within that. Um, Mm. That's spiritual growth for me, I think. Wow, that's that's a, I mean, that's a pretty wonderful summation of what the, some of the work that that fives have to do. And I, I'm reminded. I think it was Henry Now, and um, I'd have to check this. And this is a, would be a cannibalization of the quote, but essentially says that part of what love is about is guarding the solitude of the other. Mm. <laughs> that that's like that is the most beautiful i mean that just that rings so true to my fiveness like that to me that is love mm. yeah so uh we've got about five or minutes left. i could go on for a long time here with you because this but obviously your your tank is getting down pretty low right now <laughs> <laughs> i'm um, gonna need like 24 hours to recover from this yeah that's and that's okay that's all right with me yeah. so um uh I would love for a five to ask me some questions because I know that your mind is, you heard, you actually kind of mentioned at the front end, right? Like you're a little skeptical about the Enneagram and you hated the idea of being totalized or maybe, uh, you know, you thought the system was reductive, couldn't possibly account for the mystery of the human person, et cetera, et cetera. So you've read some, I know some portions of, of my book, and I'm sure that prior to this, you probably did a little research today about some things because you wanted to come on and make sure you were game on. Um, so what kind, from your perspective as a five, if you were going to speak to an Enneagram teacher, tell me the kinds of questions you would want to ask. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, I'll tell you that the, the, the time of this interview that I was the most lit up um, is when you started to talk, talk about, um, how you can't, you can't, when someone says, well, I'm a five, you want to push back and say, no, you're not a five. And then you talked about like what I bring is, you know, uh, the wisdom of God and that that reflects God there to me, what would take, what takes the Enneagram really deep is to now start can making connections. Like I think that's as a five or just the way I'm wired is want to start making connections. So immediately when you were saying that, I'm starting to think like, okay, like what are, what is within the Christian tradition? What does it mean? And, you know, uh, you know, Moltmann's talked about continuing creation. Is there, what is it, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? And does it, does every person kind of in the Enneagram in some ways reflect the very being of God by, um, their kind of personality type and, and how would you connect a deeper doctrine of God with, with these, um, with these kind of perspectives. So I, I think, you know, I think that would be one is just continuing to mine the deep spiritual tradition and making connections. I think the other is just, for me, there's something really, this is the, this is, this is the only personality test that really has ever spoken to me. Um, and I think, continuing it to do what you did there which is to give the numbers personhood and to make personhood the driver and that then the number just is a narrated experience of of the person um is is really a really important i think um yeah, so I, here, this would be really helpful for our listeners. So, and I've said it to them before, but there means, uh, you know, we've got a good number. So it's it's either helpful to review or it's helpful to hear it for the first time. So if you think about the Enneagram, we've got nine types. 
And so ones who known as the perfectionists, I think really embody the goodness of God, right? They, they just mm-hmm. want to be good and they really want to improve the world themselves and other people. But when they're healthy, I think they, they mirror the goodness of God. Two's the love of God, right? They're the, the helpers. Three's uh, the glory of God. Four's, as I mentioned earlier, pathos, creativity, beauty. Five's wisdom, omniscience. Six's the unfailing loyalty of God. Seven's the joy of God. Eight's the justice or the power of God. And nine's the peace of God, right? So mm. that is consonant with their names or their, you know, uh, their labels or their, I, I hate that word, signifiers, if you will. And, and so when they're healthy, that's what they do. It's not in service to the ego. They're not being right. any of those. They're not manipulating people with their superpowers, right? Like mm-hmm. they're just using them in service to who, you know, and just reflecting that. Per, per, now they have all of those gifts. But they're dominant. So you're five dominant. I'm four right. dominant. You know, no one's ever just one type. But we tend, I think, for reasons of self-defense and, and you know, and also because we, as people who live in a fallen world, I'm not quite sure. I, that's a conversation we could have. Like, what's the difference? Like, I'm always di- differentiating between original sin and original vulnerability. That's mm-hmm, a term mm-hmm. I've, I've sort of sort of played with. I don't even know what original sin means. I mean, are we, is it like a cellular level problem? I don't think so, but that's mm-hmm. my own sort of provisional posture on that right now. But when we're healthy, these personalities aren't obscuring the gift and they're not, they're not using it in service to the ego's desire to have everybody organize their priorities around ours and, mm-hmm. you know, around our needs and desires, uh, which are very self-interested, obviously. Yeah. So, this goes back to Merton, who was the great writer on this topic of the false and the true self. Uh, so, and of course, he's a, you know, a, a grandchild of Eckhart and, and others uh, who were very influential in his life. So this spirituality to me is the really the sort of the crux of the work I'm doing now, because my fear is, is that the Enneagram would just become a psychology system. Right. And it's not that. Yeah. Um, you know, it's that's secondary to it's really being a system or a spirituality of self-knowledge. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. So that just thank you for giving me the opportunity to kind of give my my standard little spiel on that, because I'm I'm I just feel like people are missing the point if they're just saying, oh, I'm a four. And that explains everything. It's like, no, right, no. right, right, right. In fact, that just yeah. tells me what's worst about you and also what could be best about you. Right. Right. Yeah, that's that's great. Yeah. And it's interesting to think of somehow. Um, I mean, at least some thinkers think of, of sin as as some, the protection or the feeding of the ego in, in some ways. And, and in many ways, what the, the Christological move is that uh, Jesus invites us through his own person to reorient or re, be reorientated to, to the ego to be reorientated in some ways and, and uh, uh, to think of others to to. Um, uh, yeah, to be more than maybe your number in some sense. Totally. In fact, Merton, I mean, you, you've you read New Seas of Contemplation, I'm sure, more than once. And, you know, you get to that chapter five, which is the one I'm always harping on. You know, basically what he would say is, is that pretty much it all comes down. And he's literally this heavy handed with the idea. It all comes down. The whole life of sanctification hangs on the move from the fa- moving from false self to true self. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. the that's the whole game as far as Merton is concerned, and you know he's not a lightweight. No, not at all. Yeah. 
Well, Andy, um, I, I could talk for a long time with you, but I also know that I'm seeing you wither. You're falling back into the chair. <laughs> you're sliding down and you're, you're, you're reaching for the oxygen tank. And I, I just, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but this has been incredibly rich and I'm so grateful to you. And I mean, this is going to be so helpful for people who either know fives and want to understand them better or for fives who, who need to make the shift from that sort of false self, which is self-referential and interested in its own survival and the strategies it uses don't work. Mm -hmm. uh, that the five uses and what it might look like to move from a scarcity mindset to a mindset of abundance, which is where I think is the, at least one of the transformational paths for fives to really begin to reflect the wisdom of God into the world without having it be at all encumbered or, or uh, clouded or veiled over by the agenda of the ego. Yeah. It's beautiful. Well, I've enjoyed it. I mean, it, I, you know, the, the pleasure of talking about myself is, uh, <laughs> is enjoyable. So, uh, I think I'm really interesting. So, uh, <laughs> Does it, is it, is it helping you produce a theory about yourself? <laughs> yeah. I'm going to actually, I actually have to go now and I need to write up a theory about me. <laughs> Andy Root, author of the, the, of Grace of Dogs, a boy, a black lab and a father's search for the canine soul. Thank you. And oh, and by the way, 12 other books uh, that I'm seeing on your wall on inside of your your uh, knowledge cave there. Um, thank you so much for your kindness and and also for your self-awareness and for the work that you do in the world. Thanks, man. It's been a pleasure to talk. Yep. Hey, by the way, I'm going to be in Minneapolis tomorrow night, just so you know. And I'm not going to ask you if I can <laughs> stay at your house. <laughs> oh, please don't, because I'll have to come up with some lie and excuse to say it won't work. <laughs> but don't tell your wife or she will definitely invite me for dinner. She will. She definitely will. <laughs> All right, my friend. Talk to you later. I appreciate it. Later. Hey, everybody, before I give some transformational tips for fives, I want to remind you all again that today's show is sponsored by Talkspace, the online therapy company that lets you choose from over 1,500 therapists. You can get matched with your perfect therapist who can put you on the path to a happier life and to becoming your best and truest self. For a special offer for our listeners, visit Talkspace.com forward slash typology. That's Talkspace.com, T-A-L-K-S-P-A-C-E, forward slash typology, T-Y-P-O-L-O-G-Y. Check them out. Now, if you're a five just getting started on the transformational journey, I have a few tips for you. Okay, here we go. Number one, when something happens that seems to bring up emotions in other people, I want you to try to feel with them in that moment rather then saving those feelings to process later, okay? The second thing I want you to do is just simply try to share more of your life with other people. Be more self-disclosing and just try to trust that they're not gonna misuse that information. Next, I want you to try to remember that you don't have to have all the answers for everything. You're not gonna look foolish. You're not gonna look inadequate or inept. You're just gonna look human like the rest of us. The next thing is call a friend and offer to hang out 
just for no reason at all other than to enjoy each other's company. No agenda, just hang out. And now here's the last one. I want you to take up yoga or some other activity that's going to connect you back with your body. Just, you know, to kind of get out of that space where you're up in your head and just more connected to your physical self. Well, that's all I got for today. If you enjoyed today's show or you got a suggestion for future episodes and guests, I'd love to hear from you. Go to our website, typologypodcast.com and submit a question or comment. And if you're up for it, please leave a review for us on iTunes because it really helps folks find our show. Until next week, my good friends, remember the words of the great Oscar Wilde, be yourself. Everybody else is already taken.